Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Amity. And I'm Laura. Let's get started. So our last discussion of Mere Christianity, and I have to say it's a little bit of a relief. <laughs> yes. This one... I really feel like it's, it's like running a marathon. It is, it's hard and it's heavy. And you're like, how am I even going to get through this? Like it's, it is a marathon for your brain. Like, like it really does require deep focus to be able to even understand. I feel like that's not really fair to him. He puts it in such a way that anyone can understand it, but you do have to zero in and focus because it's just very deep stuff that I don't know if maybe there's a lot of people just way better than me. I know there are that spend a lot of time thinking about this. So maybe this would be very easy to those kinds of people. And so maybe this is just an indictment on me and I need to spend a lot more time thinking like C.S. Lewis. Okay. So we were talking before we got on that, like to read this, it had to be totally quiet. Like if my family was talking at all, I would be reading the same sentence over and over and over again. I don't think this is a book I could listen to and get anything out of it. So it's just hard. It's just, it's short, but it's deceiving. (laughs) Yeah. And it's shortness because you're like, oh, this will be easy. No, not easy. Not at all. And it makes me think about screw tape letters because I did listen to screw tape letters and I was like, oh, this is so good. But I think back on it and I'm like, I'm going to have to go back and read it because there's no way that I got even a quarter out of it that I would have if I had really sat down and slowly read through it. This is book four. It's called Beyond Personality or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. There's a lot. Chapter one is called Making and Begetting. And he talks about theology. And he's like, basically like a lot of people sort of shy away from the idea of theology. It's like, well, I don't need that. But he's like, actually, you really do. What he likens it to is like, you can go and travel. You can go see the beach. You could see the ocean. But in order to really understand like where that ocean goes or where it leads to, you need to have a map. And so theology is a lot like that map, or you can travel to a place and experience a a place, but a map is very helpful to understand like where you are in relation to everything else in the rest of the world. So theology itself, the study of God and his doctrines are very important. They're not the only thing, but they are a very important thing so that we can sort of have context and understand God a little bit more. He also talks about how like a lot of people will say, well, yes, even in Christianity, people say, yes, Jesus Christ was a perfect teacher. And if we only took his advice, we might be able to establish a better social order. He's like, well, there's actually like lots of great teachers. Like if we all actually did follow the teachings of Confucius, Aristotle, Plato, like honestly, our world overall would probably be a decently better place, but that's not enough. And that's not what Christianity is. And here's the difference. He says, as soon as you look at any real Christian writings, you find that they are talking about something quite different from just listening to teachings and following them. They say that Christ is the son of God, whatever that means. They say that those who give him their confidence can also become sons of God. And we're going to talk about that a lot more, whatever that means. They say that his death saved us from our sins 
whatever that means. So this is how it is different from every other teaching, every other philosophy and religion and that, and that's why it's important. He also quickly talks about the difference between begetting and making and how like we're trying to become sons and daughters of God. Well, we already are, but like we're trying to become gods ourselves. He talks about how in the Bible, it tells us that Christ was begotten of God, where the rest of us, we were made by God, just as he made everything else. And so anything that he makes is like a part of him or there's part of him in it. But starting on the grand scale, he's like space is like him in its hugeness. There's part of him in it. Um, Matter is like God and having energy. The vegetable world is like him because it is alive. When we come onto the animals, we find other kinds of resemblance in addition to biological life, the intense activity and fertility of the insects. In the higher mammals, we get the beginnings of instinctive affection. But when we come to man, the highest of the animals, we get the completest resemblance to God, which we know of. There may be creatures in other worlds who are more like God than man is, but we do not know about them. Man not only lives, but loves and reasons. Biological life reaches its highest known level in him. Okay. And so that's how we know that we have this potential to become like God is because we are already like on that track and we already have so much of him within us. And then he talks about these two forms of life, the biological life he calls bios. And that's like what we are. And then the spiritual life, which is in God from all eternity is he calls Zoe. I know before I thought that was kind of like confused. I don't know, not confusing, but just different. Yeah, just kind of different. And I think I the only reason I even brought it up is because he keeps referring back to it through the other sections. And so it's really like the bios is what our natural man and the Zoe is what Christ is and what we are striving to be. It's right. the more spiritual man. So that's what I've got for that. Yeah. The, just in the very last, he says, and that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues. And there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. I like what, the way he says things like that. There's a rumor going around that yeah. someday yeah. you can become something. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it very much more relatable and like, okay, I think we can get this. So anything that you wanted to draw out of that? Just, I think at the beginning, it was this chapter, right? That talked about how doctrines are not God, they are only kind of a map. So like he was talking about, you know, we've got theology and we need that. We need to know about other people's experiences with God. And they kind of take everybody's experiences and put them together and come up with like an idea of what God is, what our plan is, right? But then we also need our own experiences with God. But one or the other isn't enough. We need right. both. Yes. And I thought it was really interesting. He's like, this idea of a vague religion, all about feeling and nature, it's so attractive because it's all thrills and no work, which I hear a lot. I hear that a lot. It's like, oh, it's just all about how you feel and like God and nature and just feel God. And that is important. It is. But you also, you need the roadmap. You need the understanding of the order and the doctrines and the the covenants, the ordinances, all the things that we talk about, because he says you would not go to sea without a map and you cannot become like God without understanding those principles and those things. Just the other thing I noticed was when you were talking about like, why don't we just follow these moral teachers? Well, we don't. Like there's something different about Christ, right? That 
wouldn't it be great if we just followed them, but nobody does. And so what's the difference yeah. between, and, and it's just that, you know, he's in us. That's what motivates us to be like him. And so, good. yeah, totally. We get cool quotes from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, but we understand how to live and what we're striving for and hope for more things because of Christ. And the next chapter was difficult. <laughs> the three personal <laughs> God. And what's funny is I think of personal different than I think that he is insinuating. So, you know, personal is like applies to you or whatever, but I think he means like there's a three person God. Yes. Person. I guess I think of it sort of like the word ordinal, you know, the first, second, third. So it's a person, all first, second, third person. Yeah. So it's just a little bit different than I think mm-hmm. we normally use that word. He talks about how a lot of people believe in God, but they don't actually believe that God is a person. So, and you hear that a lot, like that there's some kind of a power or that there's mm-hmm. out into the universe. Know, yes. yes. So, well, yeah, we're going to pray out to the universe or whatever. So that, that God, so a lot of people don't believe that he is a person. Some people also believe that after this life, our souls are going to be absorbed into God. <laughs> and then we basically cease to exist. So like our individuality here, once we die, we'll just go away and disappear. The difference is that Christians believe that we can be taken into God, but still be ourselves. I think of it as like we're eternal beings, like our souls, our individuality or whatever will continue to exist after we die. Then he talks about how it doesn't really do any good to talk about him, but we actually have to be drawn into him. And if we're trying to get in touch with God, we pray. But we know that God is, this is interesting, and I'd never thought about it this way. We know that God is the one that's prompting us to pray. So he's kind of trying to tie the three people together, right? Mm -hmm. So God is what's prompting us to pray. And what we know of God comes from Christ. And I liked this. God is the thing to which he is praying. The goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him, which is pushing him on the mode of power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. And then he talks about how do we come to know God? Because I think a lot of people miss this, that we have to be clean. Isn't that interesting? And a lot Mm -hmm. of people kind of judge that, right? Like that, that doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. We can still be close to God. But he says, if you're not clean, it's like you're looking through a dirty lens. Yeah. How can we see him? How can we be close to him if we're not doing the hard stuff or, you know, keeping ourselves clean? And that we need each other. That's another reason like that we need to go to church, right? We need to be united. We need to love each other and we need to help each other and also spread our knowledge of God to others. Reason Christianity is so complicated is because we didn't make it up. Yeah. And that's why we can't make it simpler because it's not made up. No, I think that was really good. Um, I liked this quote. People already knew about God in a vague way. Then came a man who claimed to be God, and yet he was not the sort of man you could dismiss as a lunatic. He made them believe him. They met him again after they had seen him killed. And then after they had been formed into a little society or community, they found God somehow inside them as well, directing them, making them able to do things they could not do before. And when they worked it all out, they found they had arrived at the Christian definition of the three personal God. Yeah. So just one thing that I would want to insert here, like, he puts it very in a very good and straightforward way. And this is a way that a lot of Christians believe in our particular belief system. We believe that there is actually a Godhead, that there are three distinct beings, 
separate from each other and that they are united as in their one heart and one mind and one purpose. And so for me, that is very comforting and it makes so much sense that because later on he's going to talk about, well, oh yeah, in my chapter. So do you have more that you wanted to talk about in that chapter? Um, I do have a question for you about this. Okay, okay. So it says, when you come to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. And in fact, he shows much more of himself to some people than to others, not because he has favorites, but because it is impossible for him to show himself to a man whose whole mind and character are in the wrong condition. I guess that's kind of goes along with the idea of being clean. I was going to ask if you believe that, like, do you believe that God doesn't show himself to us? Or I guess maybe what I'm thinking is we can't see him. So he's probably showing us, showing himself to everybody, but we just can't see him because I think that, yeah, I think, right. It's sort of like the dirty lens idea. It's like, he's always there, but we're the ones that block ourselves in, you know, because we have to have the pure heart and clean hands, right. To be able to, to see him and to be able to understand what he's trying to say to us. It's sort of like the idea that you can't hear the Holy Spirit whispering to you if, you know, there's so much noise going on inside your head or around you or whatever, you're not going to be able to listen and hear that. You've got to turn those things off just in the same way that if you're going to be able to see God, you've got to clean your lens. You've got to have a pure heart and clean hands. And um, you have to seek him, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just thought it was kind of interesting how he worded it. Like at first I was like, no, he doesn't just show himself to certain people. I think he shows himself to everybody, but we just have to be in the right spot to see it. Okay. So just sort of going into chapter three, which is time and beyond time. I really loved this. So there's a few things that I wanted to address, but basically what this is talking about is we have this very definite idea of of time because that is all that we have. We are under time constraints all the time. Our life is a timeline, right? Like we begin with birth, we end with death, and then there's all these things in between. So we are very much under time constraints, but God is not. And that is something that it's extremely hard for us to really understand, but it's not something that he's bound by at all. And so, and this is something that I've always sort of thought about is like, how does God listen to everybody's prayers at the same time? You know, how is he able to go and be with this person in their need and in their necessity? And yet also maybe be with another person in their need. And they're at the exact same time, because we keep putting him under these time constraints. He's not under those time constraints. So we can't comprehend it because we're like, but he can't be somewhere in the same moment. Well, what's a moment? What does that even mean to God? A moment is not a thing to him. He says, almost certainly God is not in time. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future, just as we do, but he has all eternity. And so we often talk about eternity as being one eternal round. And I've always thought of that round as like just this, this ring, but I think it's probably more of a sphere that there literally is no beginning no end at all. It's this uh, spherical, it's not a plane, but it's just this mass. So he can be anywhere at any time because there is no time for him. When I was a little kid, this like broke my brain. 
trying to figure oh, out there was no yeah. beginning and there was no end and we'd always yeah. existed. And I was like, this makes no sense because our mortal brains can only think of time in a line. Yeah. Very linear. Yes. Exactly. And that is not how it is. Um, and he he's like, this is how you can explain how God could come to earth as a baby, but still be the God of the universe. And so this is where I'm like, well, our belief is that there is God, the father, and there is God, the son, Jesus Christ. And then, of course, there is God, the Holy Ghost. So they are three distinct beings. So Jesus Christ himself did come to earth while God the Father was still being God the Father you know, in heaven. And perhaps that is still a very linear way of thinking because maybe maybe there's a lot more to it than that. But there is this idea that they are three distinct beings. So God could still be God while Jesus Christ was here on the earth. I would love to know um, what began this idea that they were the same person. Where I think that it's idea just came. because throughout the Bible, it talks about them, them being one the father and I are one. And, and I think a lot of it goes back to the Nicene creed. And I hope I don't get butchered in saying that, but I'm pretty sure a lot of it does come from that. Just, they sort of sat down and were like, Hey, well, what is it that we believe? Here's what we believe, you know? And here's, so it's three in one, the idea of the Trinity. I think for us so, who, who have been taught that our version of, of what they are since birth basically nothing else makes sense if that makes sense to you yeah like we've been taught this for so long because we grew up in this religion right and so it's like when i learned that other religions didn't believe that they were three beings i was like what yeah it's mind-boggling for us but um yeah it's it's another way of believing this so I just love this idea when he talks about how God is outside and above the timeline. And also he gives this example and every example he gives, he's like, this is not perfect. It totally breaks down, but here's just an idea. Maybe, you know, he's like, if I'm the author of a book, I can talk about Mary doing this in her day. And then several hours later doing this. And, and that doesn't affect me at all as the author, because I'm the creator of Mary. So I can be with her as she's doing this part and I can be with her as she's doing this part of her day. And that doesn't change anything for me as the author, if that kind of makes sense. That totally breaks down, but gives you this idea that God is not on our timeline. It's He's not a part of our timeline. It's like he's above and removed from it. When we were younger and we were taught things about time, we still thought of it as a linear thing. I remember yeah. being taught that Heavenly Father's time or God's time was different than ours, but that it was like faster. So yeah, like, like the thousand years and yes. Was just like yes. a flip to him, right? And so we were still right. taught that in this linear. Totally. But this is like, no, he has no time. It's not like know. A to B to C. It's just happening or happened. Yes. Or and so you really can see how, you know, I mean, for the longest time, I was really troubled by this idea that there were like parts of geology and things that through carbon dating, they could be like, well, this is like a hundred million years old or whatever. And I was like, well, how could that be? Because there are no constraints for God. There's no time constraints. So why couldn't it be? I mean, I don't know how it all comes to pass. I don't think that geologists really do either, but I think that it's possible because God is not under any time constraints. I just liked this quote. 
how can he listen to all of our prayers and stuff? It says he has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he has ever created. And then I like this. When Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if you had been the only man in the world. And so it just kind of makes it personal. Today, I went to primary, which is a class for young children at church. And they were talking about John the Beloved and how John called himself the Beloved because he felt beloved, right? Beloved. Yeah. And the teacher said, I have a secret to tell you to the kids. And she said, did she say like, I'm Jesus's favorite. And then she went and told each of the kids that they were also his favorite. And I just thought that was a good example of this. That's like, good. Yeah. They, and maybe that was in the lesson. Maybe she didn't come with but I just thought that was good. Like, and it's, that's explains how that can happen, how we can be each of his, their favorites. And I used to not believe that when they would tell us like, he died for you specifically. I'm like, no, he did. He died for everybody. We're all, you know, how could he have thought of me? But this way it makes it like, oh, actually he could. Yeah. Individual. It, it can be very individual. Yeah. Yeah. This really has been very game changer for me that way. Interesting. A lot of things that I was like, I, okay, we just have to take this on faith. It's like, well, actually C.S. Lewis just explained it. So <laughs> I think I'm good. Okay. We're on four, right? Yeah. Oh, this one is called good infection. I, and do you ever read the chapter titles and go, I wonder what he's going to talk about here? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I totally. I actually like really loved this one. I loved all these, but I know they, they were very deep and I'm like, how am I ever going to remember all this? But I hope I can. Okay. So he says that in an earlier chapter, he had explained that God consists of three beings. It's hard to describe them as that without implying that one of them existed before the others, which we, I believe, believe that one of them did exist before the others. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. like, because we talk of God and Christ as the father and the son. And so it suggests that God came before Christ, which makes sense to me. And then he talks about how when we think about cause and effect, we make the mistake of assuming that the cause came first, but they actually occur simultaneously. So I don't know how much I take that into this because I think we disagree. But then he did talk about the same is true of the relationship between God and Christ. So God is the cause of Christ, but there was, and then he says, there was never a point in time when God existed and Christ did not. This is interesting. Christianity defines God as a dynamic pulsating activity and as a person. Now, I think he believes that God is a person because he came to earth as Christ to become a person. Is that right? Yeah. Where we believe that God was a person before all of this and then. Right. And so like he's not super explicit, but I feel like he's still saying that God is this like great. I mean, he is a great divine thing, but hasn't specifically said that he is a person. So, And so, yes, what you're saying, I think is true that he's like, well, so he had to come to earth to be, to have personhood where we absolutely believe that God, the father already is a person. That's why we're made in his image. And we are like him, <clears throat> but Jesus Christ was someone separate who was sort of an emissary for God. Anyway. Right. Okay. And so then this was another interesting part to me that I had never thought of before, that the relationship between God and Christ is also a person. He says it's like the spirit of a family or the spirit of a team. And so mm -hmm. that connection between God and Christ is the Holy Ghost. In Christian life, you are not usually looking at him. He's always acting through you. 
If you think of the Father as something out there in front of you and of the Son as someone standing by your side, helping you to pray, trying to turn you into another Son, then you have to think of the third person as something inside you or behind you. I just liked that. Like we're thinking of the Holy Ghost is working from within us and Christ is standing beside us kind of like as our advocate and our helper. And then you've got God who's like up and I mean, all around us. Does that make sense? And then he says, if you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them, which is God and Christ. So I, and I, he said that a few times that that's the only true way to find happiness. Joy is through God. Yeah. To be completely united with him. And then he says, this is what Christianity says, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. And so I believe that he's trying to the whole time say like, we're different than Christ, which we believe, right? That Christ is like God, you know, I don't know, would you say like part God? Well, he is. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And that we're trying to become more like that. And yes. That's the whole idea of Christianity, that every Christian is to become a little Christ. And I kind of like that like analogy. You're trying to become a little Mm -hmm. Christ. The whole purpose of becoming Christian is simply nothing else. So the whole idea of being here on earth is just to become more like him. Yeah. Yeah. I just love just this little spot when he says, once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? It's like, this is just logical. You unite yourself to God so that you become part of God. He becomes parts of part of you, which, you know, in lots of ways he already is. Of course, you're going to live forever. Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? So because God is life, right? Our spiritual life and gives us our biological life. When I read that, I was like, how am I going to talk about this? Because it's very different than what we actually, what we actually believe. So yeah, no, it's, it's, that was a tough one for sure. Chapter five is called the obstinate toy soldier. Um, So in this one, it talks about, again, there's two kinds of life, the natural man and the begotten son of God. So everything God would want man to be. So basically all of us are the natural man. And then Jesus is the way that God wants us to be, right? So, so which is wonderful because we always talk about Jesus being the perfect example and he is like, that's what we're aspiring to. And so God created this perfect being for us to be able to be like, okay, we've got to get rid of all these natural tendencies because that's, that's where we want to be. And then I love, this is my very brief synopsis and then we can dive back into the chapter, but he talks about how, because all men are really connected and intertwined and God's timing is not ours. Christ's atonement literally affects everyone and everything, whether people know about him or not, because he talks about how, like, guess what? Before you were a person, you were an egg or you were a cell. And part of that cell was in your father, but part of, but they were in their father and they were in their father. So you keep going back and back and back to where like everybody is just, you think of all humans as just like this massive blanket of dots that really is all completely connected. And so when Jesus comes in and affects that blanket of dots through his atonement and it changes everything, it changes everyone, you know? And so no matter what, we are all affected by the atonement of Jesus Christ, whether we know about it or we don't, whether we accept it or we don't, it's there. Yeah. Whether we lived before it, whether we lived after it, if we didn't yeah. know it, if we'd never heard of him, 
So that was my synopsis. So now let's dive in and talk about it more. He says, the effect spreads through all mankind. It makes a difference to people who lived before Christ, as well as to people who lived after him. It makes a difference to people who have never heard of him. Because, and I love this, he says, God is no one but himself. And what he does is like nothing else. So it's like, it's fine if you don't totally understand it because God's ways are not our ways. It's okay if you don't understand this because yeah, like we've talked about earlier, you just, we have this human earthly finite brain that can't comprehend it. And I like the part where he said that humanity is already saved in principle. You know, some people think you're saved if you just believe some people. So like there's varying beliefs about that. We're all, we are all saved because we're all going to be basically eternal and keep existing after this. And and then he talks about that good and the good infection. Again, one of our own race has this new life. If we get close to him, we can catch it from him. Interesting. He will do it in us and for us. Uh, Yeah. This last, like you may say that Christ has defeated death. You may say that we are washed in the blood of the lamb. He's like, it's all true. And I like how he's like, whatever works for you, think about it. Whatever doesn't leave it. So that was a really short chapter, but Mm -hmm. interesting. Okay. So chapter six is called two notes and it's really more than two notes. (laughs) Maybe it's not. Um, (laughs) The first one is why did God create? This is people have asked him this question. Why did God create human beings and tell them to become divine rather than simply making them divine? And what I thought about was, that's kind of like what we talked about before is like, what would have been the point if we were just going to come here and just be robots? And if he made us that way and it was super easy, then what would be the point? This is the explanation he gives. First, God gave us free will and then he gave us the choice of becoming sons or not. And by that, he means becoming sons of God rather than just bios. And then also God wants to challenge us rather than having created us to be perfect already. What would be the point in coming here if this life wasn't a challenge? Also, the other explanation he gave for that was God could not have begotten an infinite number of sons. There could be only one. The only way to conceive an infinite number of sons would be to imagine them as human forms standing about together in some kind of space. We do kind of give Christ in our minds, he's occupying space, right? What we believe is that Christ is the only, like what he said, begotten son, that it would have been impossible for God to have a bunch of sons that were just like Christ. Because, and he talks about how they would, they would need to be in different places. So yeah, he says the only way to conceive an infinite number of sons is to think of them existing in the universe. Whereas one can conceive of a single father and son existing outside the material confines of the universe being God-like. Okay, so the second note is that Christians believe that humans are all unique and different from one another. But on some level, we're all operating as one. If humans think of each other as too different from one another, then we become individualists. But if we think of each other as too much the same, then we become totalitarian. So Christians believe that people are different but united. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I thought this chapter was also very difficult. To understand for me. Oh, well, something that I really loved is it says, when you find yourself wanting to turn your children or pupils or even your neighbors into people exactly like yourself, remember that God probably never meant them to be that. So it goes back to this idea of not creating the exact same thing over and over again. And he says, nature 
was created so that we could have this manyness. He only needed one son, but he does want for us to be different and unique. And we shouldn't be trying to turn anybody into ourselves. And so this idea that, you know, we need to have our children and make them be like these little robots doing exactly what we would do or what we want them to do, that would be all wrong because we're taking away their free will, which is why we're even here on earth is to have free will and to become our own people, but instead to foster their uniqueness and show them the way and yeah, help them in that. Yeah. It kind of goes along with the parenting books I've been reading about, like, you know, creating these little perfect beings that do exactly what we want is not the best thing for them. Not at all. Yeah. They need to be individuals. They need to be themselves. They need to learn how to make decisions. And if we're making all the decisions for them until they leave, then what are they going to do? Absolutely. I guess that's what I've thought for the longest time is like, if I don't allow my kids to think differently than me, then what in the world are they going to do when they get out in the world? They're like, well, my mom is not here to make these decisions for me. So I I don't know how to think. I don't know how to decide if this is a good or a bad idea. And it's so you're just going to cripple your kids. That's I see that a lot with it's something that I've had to battle with, like my entire growing up and my adult life. It's like second guessing all the time. Can I make my own decisions? I don't know, because that's not how I was raised. You're not allowed to make your own decisions. So and if you try to, then they're wrong. It's tough, man. It's tough. hard. And then it's hard to be. I don't know. It's hard to be a parent because you want to make decisions for them. You're like, no, you're making the wrong decision. And it's just hard to know where that balance is of like helping them, it and, is. Helping them and letting yeah. them decide. Absolutely. But they, I think they're here to teach us too, to yeah. like relinquish that control. Yeah. I think so. Also chapter seven, I don't know if I prepared to do this one. Hey, it's called let's pretend And he just really talks about how we are trying to become like Christ. And that is such a tall order. And it's something that we can't really do, but we can pretend in a way. And I think he just uses the word pretend because it's something that we understand. When you're trying to be like Christ, you're putting yourself in the place of a son of God. Like when we pray, we say our heavenly father, which he is our heavenly father, but we're also saying. In our doctrine, we absolutely believe that Heavenly Father is our Father. He is our Father. What C.S. Lewis is saying that is that he's not our literal Father, I believe. But we call him Father because we're sort of putting ourselves in the place of Christ, which would be a little bit presumptuous, except that we're trying to become like Christ. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so he's like, and that's fine because... The more we act like something is true, the more it will become true. And that goes across the board for anything, right? We keep telling ourselves something. Eventually, we're going to actually believe it's true. So he's like, no, we're not there. We're not We're not like Christ at all. But if we keep pretending we're like Christ, eventually we're going to have a by accident and stumble on the real thing. And like we're going to be like, oh, yes, actually, we are becoming more like Christ, which in becoming Christ-like, you actually wouldn't say that. Here's something that I wanted to share. So as you become like Christ, things change within you. There are lots of things which your conscience might not call definitely wrong, especially things in your mind, but which you will see at once you cannot go on doing if you are seriously trying to be like Christ. For you are no longer thinking simply about right and wrong. You are trying to catch the good infection from a person. It is more like painting a portrait than like obeying a set of rules. And the odd thing is that while in one way it is much harder than keeping rules, in another way it is far easier. 
It's like you're letting go of all the things that don't matter because you're trying to live in this higher and holier way. You're trying to live like Christ. The more that you become like Christ, you're going to start to notice a couple of things. He said, first, we begin to notice besides our particular sinful acts, our sinfulness, we begin to be alarmed not only about what we do, but about what we are. He says, I've been taught, number two, I've been talking as if it were we who did everything. In reality, of course, it is God who does everything. His whole point is as soon as we like open up to God and we're like, no, I want to be like you. I want to be like the Savior. I want to be like Jesus Christ. It's like he will help you. And we're going to talk about it more in a couple of chapters. Just like, okay, like this is a big deal and it's it's going to be hard. But if you open yourself up to God and turn yourself over to him, you can get there and he will help you every step of the way. Like we said, this last section, I think, was way more complicated than any of the other sections that we've covered. I especially like the quote that you shared from the kind of the beginning of the chapter where he's talking about trying to catch the good infection from a person. We're just trying to be more like Christ. And, you know, at first, maybe when you start to think about faith, you are thinking of it as in a set of rules. Like I do this, I don't do this. These things I abstain from, these are the things I need to do. But then the more you grow and learn, the rules kind of are able to be pushed aside because you're becoming something more. You're becoming more like Christ. And that's your goal instead of following these like specific rules. Right after that, it says the real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. So we're becoming more godlike. So Christ here and now is in the very room where you are saying your prayers and he's doing things to you. And then at first, only for moments, then for longer periods. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. And soon we make, and then he goes into the other discoveries that we make. I liked that analogy that it's like, Christ is changing something in you. And at first it's just, you'll just see it in little moments and then it gets longer periods and that's how we get better and better. And then pretty soon we can see that we're somebody different. Like you said, we'll talk about that later because I think he explains that more Mm -hmm. in a a couple of chapters. And then at the end he says, is not that how the higher thing always raises the lower? God looks at you as if you were a little Christ. Christ stands beside you to turn you into one. He said that several times. I dare say this idea of a divine make-believe sounds rather strange at first. Is it so strange really? Is not that how the higher thing always raises the lower? So he's like, he's seeing something different in us. and That's how he's bringing us up to him. Yeah, I mean- well, because as we're going to talk about in a couple of chapters, he's not going to help us be anything less than perfect. So yes, he sees something more in us. I think that's how we should parent too. Like how do we yeah. bring the kids up then rather than like in one of the parenting books I read this week, it was like, no, it was a video. So if you're having trouble parenting, I'm taking a, I'm taking a college course, but I'm also taking a class at the school on conscious parenting. My sister it teaches preschool and she uses it in her preschool and it's a fantastic program and it goes a lot along with oh. what I'm learning. I watched a video by this lady. It's Dr. Becky Bailey and she does the I love you rituals book. But she's like, what if all day long you had somebody next to you with a whistle that blew a whistle and told you everything you did wrong? Like that's what our kids think that we're just behind I have thought that so many times don't do that don't touch that don't stop acting like that don't talk don't yell don't scream don't jump don't 
you know what I mean? And like every time yeah, totally. blowing this whistle and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. So I feel like I'm doing that to Presley a lot, but it's hard to get out of the habit. But yeah, like, oh my gosh. But I do find like, as they get older, you lessen it. And so it's just, I don't know. It's like finding the balance of knowing what do you let go and what do you not. Yeah. It's tough to and it's hard when they're always doing stuff that annoys you. <laughs> <laughs> it is <laughs> for sure. So chapter eight, is Christianity hard or easy? Now, this one, the last few I've done short, but like chapter 10, anyways, that's going to be crazy long. So how does it differ from ordinary morality or just being good? So how is Christianity different from just like, I should do this, right? You know, or that idea that we kind of know what we're supposed to do. So our ordinary self has certain desires and interests. So I, we think of that as like the natural man, right? Because we know that there are things we should do or ways we should be, sometimes then once we know that, then some things that we want might be considered wrong. This is a natural a desire that we have as a natural man. So we know these are wrong and so we have to give them up. But then there are things that are right that we don't really want to do. We're always hoping that once we do all that we should, there should be a little bit left over for us to do what we want. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the end of the day. He talks about it like taxes. Like once you're done with paying your taxes, like hopefully you have some more money left over. But I feel like it's like at the end of the day, like once I've done everything I need to do, can there just be a little bit of time for me? Like, yeah. It's like, that, well, no. <laughs> yeah. Not lately. Have that natural desires, you know, have time for that. We try to do one of two things. We give up trying to be good or we become somebody who is doing good, but we're mad about it. We resent that. Kind of like going to church and complaining about like the time it takes or the money that it requires or we're doing the thing, but then we're just like yeah. mad about it. That is ordinary morality is when we're doing the things that we should, but we're angry about it. The Christian way is different. It's both harder and easier. So here's what Christ wants all of us. If we give him ourselves, then he will give us himself and our will will become aligned with his. So we'll no longer have that like laundry list of stuff that we still want after we're we're done doing what we're supposed to do, right? I thought of it like this, like food. You wanted to quit eating sugar. And I said to you, I have a way that we can like take away the desire for you to eat sugar. Would you want it? Mm -hmm. I actually would. Some people wouldn't. Yeah. And I could see that. Yeah. Right. But like that. But, but the thing is, like, not very long ago, I wouldn't want that because just the way that my goals and things I'm working towards right now, the past several months, like, no, I don't want that because that will hamper my goals that I'm working really hard towards. But most of my life, I'm like, heaven is going to be able, is going to be like, we can eat whatever we want. And it will have no effect on us. Heaven is like eating all the sugar that you want. And so, no, I wouldn't want something that would hamper that desire. I know. And I, some people don't. Now, I think I would want, like you said, I would want somebody to take away that desire, right? So like, you know, there's that new medicine that everybody's taking to not want to eat. And some people don't want to mm -hmm. take it because they don't want to lose that desire to to eat eat. because that's how mm -hmm. they get their happiness, right? But it's yeah. like this. Would you want your will to be aligned with God's? I think so. I think it would yeah. be hard. 
then you wouldn't want it, right? I mean, I think about like addicts. Well, I mean, and I'm an addict. I'm a sugar addict. I'm sure they would want it to be taken away, the desire. But the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what you are trying to do instead. (laughs) For what we're trying to do is to remain what we call, quote, ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life and yet at the same time be good. We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. That is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. It's the hardest thing to give your whole life or self to Christ, but it's in the end, it's the easier thing. Because you're not shooting at two different things at the same time. And I think that's his point is like, we are trying to break ourselves up. We're trying to live these double lives. And that's extremely difficult because on the one hand, we want to be good. On the other hand, we don't. So (laughs) we end up just like in a muddle. So if we just hand everything over to Christ, it makes a lot more sense and it ends up being a lot easier. Go back to the sugar thing. So what you're trying to do is limit your sugar, but still have the desire. You don't want to give up that desire, right? Mm -hmm. But the easier thing would be to give up the desire and then you're not fighting yourself. Yeah. I mean, some one thing, maybe it's kind of similar to that. I've thought maybe we just all need to not have the sense of taste, you know, <laughs> like I thought that a few times, like just take away our sense of taste and then we'd probably be much skinnier people. <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want my sense of taste taken away because I, I enjoy tasting things There, there's great pleasure in that. It's kind of like asking God to make us that perfect being from the beginning. Yeah. Like just make us perfect. So this is easy. And right. And there would be no growth in that. But then again, why do we have to, why does food have to taste so good? Right. And I do think that it's like a multifaceted reason. I think that like, it is because God wants us to have some pleasure. I think it's so that we can learn to control our appetites so that we can learn to like bridle our, ourselves and, and control those things. And also it, can definitely be a safety thing, right? Like we can taste things and go, that is not good. <laughs> like we should not consume that. So I've decided this week that, that Costco pizza is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> like their cheese is like rubber. Oh, Have you ever I think their crusts are pretty bad. I think their crusts oh. are pretty bad. My family eats it and I'm like, well, today, this weekend we got pizza and I was like, I can't eat this. It's like chewing yeah. the rubber. So to me, the Costco pizza is telling me this is not good for you. This is not good. <laughs> no. So something I thought about in this part where he says the first job each morning consists simply in shoving back all of your wishes and hopes for the day. And instead listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day. So like letting God lead the way. And of course we have things that we do have to do, but allowing him to lead us through those things. Right. And then he says, we can only do it for moments at first, but from those moments, the new sort of life will be spreading through our system. And I just, as I read that, I was like, this is like training. It's like any kind of training. The particular kind of training that I like to do is training for races and and running and running fast. And you can only do a little bit at first, but I do lots of strength training, mobility and and things like that along with it. But you have to start like small and then you add on 
and you add on and you get a little bit harder and a little bit faster and a little bit longer. You're doing all these things to help and aid you in that training until eventually you're like, oh, I can do this all day long, right? And so if we think of it that way, I'm just going to shove all those things back and listen to the other voice for an hour. (laughs) I don't know that that's how you would do it, but you know what I'm saying? But like really train ourselves to listen very closely for a while. And then we find ourselves getting better and better and better at listening to that voice and following the Holy Ghost and letting God take the lead all day long, every day. And we will find ourselves being changed. I have that highlighted too. Like you wake up and you have all these uh, hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. Like how do we let God guide our days? How do we do that? I think that's hard. We have so much. I think it is too. And that's why I think that it is a matter of training. It's, it's a little bit at a time. I think it was maybe your chapter, chapter 11, that talks about how like people that are like this, they aren't in a hurry. They aren't rushed. I'm not there. I I know. I know. So does it mean that we cancel everything else? I don't know. Okay. You're on nine, right? Counting the cost chapter nine. This talks about how God helps us and the help he gives us is to help us to become perfect. And so I'm just going to pull out a couple of highlights here because basically he addresses this idea of being perfect and becoming perfect. And he's like, a lot of people go to God to be cured of some like one thing in particular. But if you go to God to be cured of that one thing, you're actually, and if you're sincere about it, you're actually going to God to be cured of everything. And so I love this. He warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that's what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will. And if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well-pleased with you as he said he was well-pleased with me. This I can and will do, but I will not do anything less. Boom, done. (laughs) It's like, I don't know what else to say. There it is. It's like, The minute we turn our lives over to Christ sincerely, our lives may seem like they're harder. They may, because his job is not to make our lives easy, but to make us as God. And how can we expect that that would be an easy road? Being a God is not an easy thing. We might accept Christ, give ourselves to him, and then things might not get easier. Yeah. That's the point, right? (laughs) It is the point, because... To become something greater, we we have to have higher expectations and harder challenges. And something he compares it to a couple of things. He he says, like, look, you know, basically when we were conceived, we were like these little just tiny cell creatures that maybe if we had any conscious thought, we'd be like, oh, well, I'm totally fine right here. You know, this is comfortable. But it ultimately wouldn't be. That's not our design. That's not our purpose. Instead, we have to keep developing. And it's much harder to be a baby and then push our way out of the womb and then live in this world than it would have been to just like stay comfortably in the warm little womb as a little cell. But what good would that do at all? He's like, 
God basically has this higher plan, a much higher plan. He's like, to shrink back from that is not humility, it's laziness and cowardice. And to submit to it is not conceit or megalomania, it is obedience. He also talks about how like God is trying to sort of transform us into something much better. He's like, think of yourself as a house. God is not building this little cottage. He's building a palace. And not only that, it's something that he wants to come live in. So of course, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful, but you have to allow him to do it. I like that, that he has an idea of a palace that you can't even imagine and that he has a plan for us that we, it's not our plan. It's his plan. He talks about, this is why we must not be surprised if we're in for a rough time. Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into a situation where he will have to be much braver or more patient or more loving than he'd ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Like we can't even see it. Yeah. And so when these things come up for us, we're like, why is this happening? What is going on? Right. We don't see the end result there's a group called the truman brothers and they sing this song called before the calm before the storm i think hmm. oh are they like a lds group yes. of brothers i think it's oh yeah they're one of them is my sister's neighbor so they were on the all in podcast this week and they just came out with a christmas album that's really good oh cool okay well, i keep hearing they're so good and i yeah i need to listen to that. so it's all about like it's the storm before the calm. That's the problem. That's what it's called. Mm. Like that God will come in and help us, right? <laughs> the, calm. Yeah. the chorus kind of goes, it's just the storm before the calm. It's just the darkness before the dawn. When the water's rising, keep holding strong because it's just the storm. It's just the storm before the calm. And then he says, the Holy Spirit whispers, this will all be for your good, but you can't help but wonder how it ever could. Yeah, That's what I'm thinking is like, God has this idea of who you could be and what it's going to take to make you that. And so when we're going through things, we're like, hey, don't know why this is happening. I don't know how this could ever be for my good, but it is. He has a plan for us that we can't even imagine. No. Okay. So chapter 10 is called Nice People or New Men. A quote at the kind of the beginning, fine feelings, new insights, greater interest in religion mean nothing unless they make our actual behavior better. When Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. I liked this chapter. I thought it was really interesting. So why is I it? I did too. Yes. Like, why is it unreasonable to think that Christians should be nicer than non-Christians? Number one, it's hard to classify who is a Christian because there's people going into it. There's people coming out of it. There's some people that believe part of it. You know, it's not like, I think he talks about like cats and dogs. Like you can see a cat and you can see a dog and it's obvious, right? So we don't know. <laughs> so number two is if cre if Christianity is true, then any person would be nicer as a Christian than he would be if he weren't a Christian. And if a man becomes a Christian, then he would be nicer than he was before. The problem is, is you can't compare two people. Because, because you, you don't know what they're coming from. Yep. So somebody who is a Christian might be a really nasty person and somebody who is not might be a really nice person. And the idea is that Christianity should just make everybody better than they would be. And the third thing is we all need some amount of saving. The question mm -hmm. is whether or not we will give ourselves to him. It's not what we do. It's not on a daily basis. It's like, where's our heart, I guess? Where are we? Are we giving our whole selves to him. 
Um, And he says he can help us do it, but he can't force us. If a nice person does not turn to God, this was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. If a nice person does not turn to God, then he thinks his niceness is because of him. Yeah. And as long as he thinks that, it's not him. Yeah. But when a nice person realizes that his niceness is not his own, but a gift from God, and he offers it back to God, that's when it becomes his own. He says, the only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. What we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. So he says, we shouldn't be surprised that there are Christians who are nasty (laughs) and that there's a reason why. During Christ's life, this was fascinating to me. During Christ's life, he seemed to attract these kind of people. The people that had have money, were raised in a good family, have intelligence and health. You might just be satisfied with how you are. You might not think you need anything better. You're like, I got this. And I think I'm guilty of this. I got this on my own. I don't need help. I can swoop in and take care of anything. If we're like that, then we might not see a need for Christ. And that is why it's hard for the, quote, rich to enter the kingdom of God. And rich doesn't necessarily just mean money. It just means right. been given a lot. And so when those that struggle to make an attempt to change it all then they realize that that's when they need help. We have everything and we're blessed with everything and we're never trying to change. We're never going to realize that we need this help from Christ. And so the people that want to change and realize that they need help are the people that he came for. So here's the conclusion. If niceness comes easily for you, beware. It is easy to mistake your niceness as your own instead of as a gift from God. And if you are poor, he knows all about it and he's there to help us. And that's why he came. This to me was like mind blowing. Yeah. It's like the whole idea that you can't find yourself until you lose yourself in Christ and then find ourselves. Yeah, definitely. And something I wrote down because you just quoted it, but he's like, if you are a poor creature poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, Nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex makes you snap at your best friends. Do not despair. He knows all about it. Like you said, but that's only a handful of things. Like literally everyone is at this place because everyone is nagged by something. Even if it's a, maybe it's a superiority complex. Maybe it's like, look, I'm too good for everybody. Or they're just totally in denial of the things that are wrong with them. But the point is to understand that that is where you are, that you are poor, that you do yeah. need Christ. Everybody does, no matter what you're blessed with in your nature. You have lots of places that you fall short. There's some people who maybe their outward failings are more obvious than others because they're outward. Other people have inward failings. So, but everybody has them. And it's just a matter of acknowledging and not judging. And it's easy to not acknowledge it when you basically got things under control. Totally. It's like, well, my life is going along smoothly, so I must not be doing anything too bad. Again, I I feel like I've said it before, but I feel like a lot of this book, it comes around to the fact that we need to be focused on our personal journey and where we are and not judging anybody else. Like We just don't have a place to do that. But he says right here, Christ told us to judge by results. A tree is known by its fruit, or as we say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. But when you think about that for a minute, yes, a tree has fruit. So that 
those are some obvious results. And there are some situations where there's obvious results, but for the most part, results indicate the end of something and nobody's story is over. So how can we really ever judge someone? Because we don't really know what their results are. Not really, because it's not over. And even, I think he even says that like death is part of the plan. Yeah. Like after we die, we're going to keep progressing. I think he talks about that a little bit in the next chapter. I mean, I struggle with that. I struggle with judging. And I think I have to remind myself. Everybody does. I always like the thought. If we, if I thought what they thought, I'd do what they did. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I think that is so powerful. I think so many times I, I think about parenting and kids and I'm like, oh, look, all those kids turned out so great. They must be great people, great parents, perfect family. But the kids themselves are not done. They're not done. Just because they're nice teenagers doesn't mean that they're acting. Maybe maybe they're acting like so nice because they're like under deep control. Maybe their parents are awesome. Maybe they were just born like super nice. And again, like maybe their parents are like doing everything just so beautifully and so right. But also down the road, maybe they're going to make some not so good choices. Maybe they're going to always make wonderful choices. Like we just don't know. So we can't draw any conclusions. And parents get any credit or any blame because kids will do what they'll do. And like you said, like they could look like perfect children. You get them off, you know, they turn 18, they go do exactly what you want them to do. And you don't know what's going to happen five years down the road. No. And it's never done. Exactly. We don't actually have that many results to judge off of. My cousin just posted on Facebook. She is my age. This is a kind of a distant cousin not not a first okay cousin. not not first cousin. not a first cousin but my mom and her mom are cousins when we were in college when i was in college she went to jail like for mm. meth i don't okay. know probably stealing stuff and stuff but meth i don't even know but drugs okay. and she said later she was like she she posted a picture of her family and she's like my mother did nothing wrong my two older sisters went to college i went to prison i'm an addict this was me i made these choices and i just thought that was really interesting that and it's wonderful that you know that she can say that to her mom like she loved me she was the perfect mom and i made these decisions but as parents yeah hard time with that that shows some deep maturity because i think so many times people want to make these stupid choices and then somehow blame their parents for it because really like even if their parents weren't the best parents or there were lots of issues and trauma like once you're an adult I just don't think you get to blame your parents anymore especially after you're 25 and your brain is fully formed like you need to take complete responsibility for your actions of course there's like trauma from childhood that affects you there there's no question about that but you still get to make choices yeah every day and parents I believe are doing the best they can and so it's like how are you gonna are you gonna fault them we're right? all just doing the best we can and it's hard yeah. here. I don't have any childhood trauma that I know of, but <laughs> minor. No, <laughs> but if I did, it would be hard not to blame them. Yeah, it's something that I battle with. My siblings battle with all the time, and I just chapter eleven is called the new men. Okay, and this is really cool because he talks about evolution up to this point. You know, we have we've evolved obviously a lot up to this point in time, but now he's like, so what is the next step? And he's like, I believe that our next step differs so much 
from what evolution has been up to this point in these five ways. Okay. So number one is that we're not going to evolve because of sexual reproduction. That's not going to be part of it. Um, number two, our evolution, our next step is voluntary. It's something that we choose whether or not we're going to be this way. Number three, Christ is the new man. So that is, he really is our next step. That's who we're trying to become. So that is our, we're not trying to become him, but we're trying to become exactly like him. Number four, it's just at a different speed. Everybody's going at a different rate. All of evolution that way, this next step is a different speed than it's been up to this point. And number five, the stakes are higher. It's dangerous to not choose to take this next step, to not choose to become like Christ. The evolution has already begun. We will run into the new man who has given himself over to Christ. And this is the person that you were talking about, this person who's like unhurried and who has this like sort of higher view and understanding of life. And so they just go about and navigate the world so much more differently. When we turn ourselves over to Christ, do we lose our individuality? And so this is something he talks about for just a minute. If we're all supposed to be exactly like Christ, does that mean we're all going to be the same? And he says, no. And here's here's a couple of examples he gives to illustrate that. He's like, well, I'll just give one example. Suppose a person who knows nothing about salt. You give him a pinch to taste and he experiences a particular strong, sharp taste. You then tell him that in your country, people use salt in all their cookery. So then maybe he's going to assume, well, then everything in your country, all of your food just tastes like salt because it's such a strong flavor. Surely it's going to take everything over. And it's like, well, no, like who really knows what salt itself tastes like? Because what it does, it draws out the beautiful flavors in everything else. And so he's like, that's really what it is. When we become like Christ, we actually become our unique selves, who we were meant to become. It draws out the most beautiful parts of ourselves. We're up to this point, we're actually not very much individuals. We're kind of just like everybody else, you know, but as we become like Christ, we become fully these unique and wonderful and beautiful individuals. I hope that makes sense. It goes back to this principle of give up yourself and you will find your real self, lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. And that is the end, unless there's something else that you wanted to pull. Yeah, I love that last sentence. Like, and, and he talks too about like, if you go into this relationship with Christ, trying to find yourself, you won't have to go into the relationship, giving yourself to Christ. And that's when you find yourself. Oh, so good. So good. So the question now I need to figure out is what do I need to do differently? (laughs) Therefore, what? My favorite phrase. It's like, okay, now what? What do we do about it? Now what do we do? Oh, I just, I love it. That was good. And I feel smart. (laughs) Deep exhale. Good grief. I don't know if I feel smart or more dumb. (laughs) Because I'm like, I don't think I will ever be on that level. (laughs) No. Which is fine. I don't need to be. But holy moly. 
But now I can say I read near Christianity. <laughs> yes. And it was fantastic and kind of a must read for everybody. Yeah. So now what, what do we, I don't know. I guess you have to figure it out for yourself. What do you need? To yeah, do? you really do. And that's exactly, I think that's exactly his point. Do some deep introspection. How do we come closer to Christ and how do we come more, become more like him? That's what I think. Yeah, and just turn ourselves completely over to him. It's tough, man. So know. good. And I thought this was a good time of year to read this. Absolutely. Next, we need to do like a really easy book. <laughs> kids book. <laughs> Let's choose one of our like kids books. Ginger pie. <laughs> Is that a good one? No, we are going to do uh, Moffat's. Is the that Moffat's. A- that one's super cute and it would be very easy. Yes. We should do that one. For sure. Okay. Really quick. What are you reading? Okay. So I'm actually going to share a book that I am reading with my kids because I feel like I do that every other week. So this is called Pedro's Journal, A Voyage with Christopher Columbus, August 3rd, 1492 to February 14th, 1493. It's by Pam Conrad. So basically it is the journeys of the Nina Pinta Santa Maria from the point of view of a little ship's boy. So Pedro de Salcedo, could not have known what adventures lay ahead. His incredible voyage to ship's boy aboard Christopher Columbus's Santa Maria would bring both danger and excitement. Pedro captured his experience between the pages of a journal. If he did not return alive, perhaps someone someday would find it and learn of his incredible journey to the new world. And so the, she tries to keep it real. It's pretty short. It's easy, pretty easy read. The kids enjoy it. But she also, like I said, she tries to keep it real. And so even in the short children's book, like some of the personalities that were going into it. And a lot of times we paint Christopher Columbus as either a saint or a fiend. And he was really neither kind of in the middle, you know, like everybody. And so that's kind of where she, he's not this perfect person. He's not this absolutely evil person. He's just a person. And maybe he has a little more uh, difficult personality than some. I am reading a very good book. I've had a good streak. Um, oh, good. It's called The Mo- Many Lives of Mama Love by Laura oh. Love Harden. And it's a memoir of this lady who had a heroin addiction. She's a suburban mm-hmm. mom. And oh. she got arrested. Her and her husband got arrested for identity theft and drugs and stuff. Yeah. And so she goes to prison. She's like, basically, she's home with her three-year-old and then she gets arrested. And so... Her th- she has three older boys, but they have a different father. But this boy that was with her at the time is the f- son of the man that got arrested too. So she goes to jail and loses her son. And she's like painted in the newspapers as like the neighbor from hell because she was mm-hmm. like stealing people's identities. And mm-hmm. basically they were spending all their money on drugs and then they yeah. needed money to feed their kids and stuff. And it was so good. I I mean, I'm almost done with it and I'm really enjoying it, but she has a master's degree. Oh, wow. And so she goes to jail and she becomes mama love because she is very smart. And so people are like consulting her with things. She actually ends up, she's a writer, obviously (laughs) she ends up writing letters for people that are women that are in jail that Mm. are trying to get like maybe early release or get their kids back or so she writes letters for people to help them with that and it just talks about her like struggles to stay clean and like how prison is like you think people go to jail and then they can't do drugs but 
it's almost easier to get drugs in jail. Uh, interesting. Yeah. It's, anyways, it was, it's very good. I'm really liking it. Like it's made me very thankful for not having a drug addiction. You know, I think that books like that are really important. I think, you know, it kind of goes back to what we have been talking about this mere Christianity and not judging people because we often don't know what their story is, what they're coming from. But books like that kind of give us a picture and it makes you go, oh my gosh, like I, I love what you say. If I thought their thoughts, I'd probably do what they do. You know, essentially, I don't know if you've read Demon Copperhead yet by Barbara Kingsolver, but I've, I've seen a lot of sort of mixed reviews on it, but I thought it was very, very good. And it's sort of in that same vein. Of course, it's, it's not a true story, but it is based on truth, you know, and gives you the idea of like, you know, the hard lives that a lot of these people have. And sometimes they just feel like there are no other choices or options and it's tough. One of the focuses of the book is once she gets out of jail and she's trying to get her little boy back is how hard they make it. They release her from jail and she literally has nowhere to go, no house, but yet she has to show up for work release. But then at the same time, she has to be in family court and she can't do both, but they're like, you have to, she's like, how can I? And then she's got all these fees she has to pay. And she's like, I make $10 an hour, but yeah, I have my five-year-old in tow. It's just fascinating to me. Okay. So next week we are going to do our top 10 books of the year that are not books that we read for the podcast, but right. Yeah. Yeah, so, I'm excited. It'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So much lighter. <laughs> yes. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss our top 10 books of 2023. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first, or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.